see which class the kid is in and close down the class. Hopefully you might even be able to keep the kid home and close down nothing except tell the kid when you get negative, come in. Not enough testing, not enough masking. And I would say the third thing we didn't do well is communicate. And all this misinformation out there, I'm going to use ivermectin, the famous pill for deworming. Uh, I'm going to use bleach. I'm trying HCQ. I mean, people were trotting out this vast array of useless stuff. And I don't think the major communicators ever got on the ball to counteract that. They never got their message in order. Eventually, a lot of folks stopped believing the main messaging. So that's a social science failure, if you will, or a communications failure. Shouldn't have had so many people just getting up there saying, is COVID real? Is this a hoax? Are the pharma companies just making money? How come they're hiding these cures that they have out there? And people are like, what cures? If we had cures, we'd use them. I mean, it wasn't some uh, plot. So good on vaccines, bad on the rest. That's a great summary. And I'll tell you my own personal experience. The first year I was heavily involved in patient care, heavily involved in inpatient care, you know, sleeping in the basement, getting dressed in the garage and seeing people routinely who did not believe it existed, but we had no vaccine. Praying and hoping for a vaccine. Uh, a son who is, uh, he's now out of the army, but he was captain in the army. And I remember saying to him, like, I never wanted to be the person people would say, thank you for your service to. I never, I don't have the guts for that. It's not what I do. And all of a sudden we were all thrust in those positions. But the added part, it was almost like being a in the Vietnam War or something. You had people attacking you because you were saying things they didn't want to hear. And yeah. early on, and I have to tell you, it was publicly well received because I didn't wouldn't take any money for it. I started a podcast and then a video cast, probably 300 audio ones, about 250 video. They linger because of YouTube and social media. But every one of them was the best we knew at the time. And I said, I'm not taking sponsors. I'm not doing this. This is just to get you information and try to believe me because there was this frustration that you saw people dying. I mean, you literally did. And and I think I'm at the point now, I, I hardly ever do them anymore because I think people now know the lay of the land. They're making, mm -hmm. their, you know, and that brings us to the ethical part of this. Thing. Although let me jump in with one other thing I think we didn't do well. What's that? We didn't protect the people in nursing homes who were highly vulnerable. My mom died March 2020 from COVID in a nursing home. She was pretty active and I wouldn't say she was uh, running marathons, but, you know, she had her card games and her getting her hair done. She enjoyed her life. She was probably my biggest uh, critical commentator when she heard me on the media. So she was... Well, maybe it doesn't take a lot of brain power to be the biggest critic of me, but you know what I mean. She was yeah. able to. Nothing like a mother could do that. You're right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they shared bathrooms. They didn't have protective gear. They didn't know what to do about getting meals to these poor souls. They, uh, they had nothing. And the thing was moving. This was Massachusetts where she was, but New York State had it. Pennsylvania had it. A lot of states in the early phases they, they just basically, I'm going to say, abandoned the elderly in nursing homes. And that was really a sad situation. And not just right-wing politics or Trump in New York State, the governor, Cuomo, did a horrible job protecting uh, nursing home residents. 
What about the politics of it? We'll start there. You know, again, I made a point to stay out of the politics. I would occasionally dive in and say, you know, a when they had a thing in the Rose Garden, this is a super spreader event. Or if you did a speech and they weren't wearing masks, what are you doing? You're, you know, infecting mm -hmm. people. Those types of things. I even remember when Trump was cruising around with the Secret Service. And the right, Russians. right. What's going on? Those times I would step in, but I would never make a comment, Biden, Trump, or whatever, politics. I would just say, this is a risk. This is the science. But it did become political. I mean, there's people out there who have somehow taken wearing a mask, which, you know, I don't like wearing masks, especially in the summer. It's, it's annoying, but it's going to keep me alive. And I know it's going to protect other people. I'll do it. But there were those who just looked at it as something that was their forcing them against their freedom yeah and it became a concession uh to liberal overprotection or nanny state or something so a lot of people would say if you're wearing a mask that tells me you're a liberal or a democrat or something you're not a conservative and you're not for freedom and you're not for autonomy i think this crossover of politics and science had actually started before COVID. You know, it started to appear with climate change. If you were like worried about the climate change, you were a lefty. And if you were saying we got to have jobs and not so worried about the climate change, you're a righty. So we'd started to mix politics into science a little bit that way. Um, you'll also remember, Brian, the irony when Ebola appeared, it was the right-wing governors who were trying to quarantine everybody and the left-wing governors who were saying, you can't do that. Remember Christy, Chris Christie tried to lock up that nurse at like, Newark Airport and she ran away to Maine and I mean, yes, everything was yeah. flipped. But it still was political. That's my point. There was a left-right divide and it just got accelerated, partly due to Trump, I will say. I think he wanted people to go back to normal and not have the economy damaged. So he made it a point to say, this masking stuff, uh -uh. Quarantines and shutdowns, not good. And the critics, if you will, came from the other side of the political spectrum and said, you got to save lives and you can't worry about the economy and you can't worry too much about uh, making people do things they don't really want to do. Uh, I've never seen, I've seen politics, as I said, but not at that intensity, just not that bitter. I mean, I went to a restaurant, I'm in Connecticut, pretty blue. But there are certainly people here who were uh, red in different towns. My favorite restaurant is run by a bunch of Trumpers. Every time I went in there, they'd give me a hard time for wearing a mask. And I'm talking at the height of the epidemic. I'm not talking about yesterday. And I would say, I want to be able to come here. I want to give you guys the business. Don't you understand that the mask is related to more freedom? I, I If I have the mask, I can come out more. If I don't wear a mask, I'm at risk and I'm not going to want to come to the restaurant. So it's better for you to, to, you don't have to require masks, but it's better for you to be tolerant of mask wearing because older people or the immune compromised or the, at that time, people with kids, they're not even going to come out. So I, I guess what I'm saying here is it was political. And I think the messaging got all confused. It became you're free if you're not wearing a mask, whereas my attitude was you're free if you are wearing a mask because you can go more places. Right. And early on in my career, I mean, really early, I had opportunity to interview C. Everett Koop, uh, and he was a famous Surgeon General for those who are younger. It's the guy with the beard, but he was very 
he's probably the most, I would say the most recognizable surgeon general in our lifetime. He was very, uh, very doctoral and official. And, but I interviewed him years after, um, after he was done his term. And I asked him about HIV and I said, you know, it's really weird, but I remember, and this was a, reminded me a lot of HIV where politics got involved in in the late eighties and, and early nineties. Like um, at the time, Reagan, when he was president, wouldn't address the issue. And I said, you know, did you ever talk to him about it? He goes, I gotta tell you something. I spoke to the president three different occasions and on three different occasions, the president said, I'm going to talk about it tomorrow. You're right. I understand. But then his handlers got to him. Uh-huh. They talked about the politics or whatever. And, and I think a lot of that politicians, um, you'd like to think that they would get beyond the politics and think about what's best for everyone. But, but obviously they, they think about those other things. And I got a little side story for you. First time I was ever on a major national TV show, Face the Nation. It's a discussion. Remember we were having big debates back in uh, that time of Reagan about what to do with newborn babies who had uh, birth defects, basically. Some people said, don't treat them. Some people said, you got to treat them. Some people said, we need a phone hotline. You're supposed to call up Washington if you see a baby being neglected. I actually thought we were under-treating the babies, but I thought the phone hotline was a bad idea. You shouldn't be having a national rat-out doctor's line, and I didn't think it would work. So who am I put on with for my first major national TV appearance? C. Everett Coop. He and I are in D.C. on Face the Nation, and I'm supposed to debate this guy. I'm like, (laughs) he was going to just order me to go overboard, and I was going to, okay, you remember the early days of the varicella vaccine. I remember I did a story. He crushed me because I did a story and I said, you know, I don't know why we have a vaccine for chickenpox. At this point, my worry is in 20, 25 years when young women who are being vaccinated now are ready to have babies, they could be at greater risk to get chickenpox naturally acquired and have birth defects. Whereas if we have it when you're a kid, you're done with it. And I'm going through all this. And the vaccine had already started. I said, in many, many ways, I think this is just a way so that people can stay home and, uh, you know, they won't miss work and they can go to work. And Anyway, long story short, I go through this rant and talk and he says, where were you when the debate was occurring? Because right now, unless everybody goes for the vaccine, it fails. So what you're saying will cause sure failure. So stop talking about it and get over <laughs> the program. And I went, he's scientifically, the guy just destroyed me in a nice way. But he's right. If like. Now that you have decided and committed to a vaccine, yeah. you want 100%. So let, let's get to back to COVID. I mean, I love these stories. It's fascinating because when you go through history, you see we don't really change a lot. We just kind of go through different things. Just the characters, new new yeah. roles, new actors. Don't learn a lot. And, uh, but, but my question is this. Okay, so now we know we had the vaccine. The thought was if you could get everybody vaccinated, you could eradicate it. But the reality was it's a worldwide problem. And it's a major ordeal to get everyone vaccinated. So we've gotten to the point where we have a number of people vaccinated. Those who want to truly have. Those who don't want to are willing to take the risks. What is the ethical dilemma? Like in my case, I'm a doctor. I'm taking care of everybody going into a room. I don't care whether they have COVID or not. And I'm going to respect them and treat them all the same. But if you're going out and you're double boosted, do you have an obligation anymore when you go to a restaurant to wear a mask in the event you, you theoretically could spread the virus or, or is it done 
from your perspective ethically? So it's a good question. And I know we're all tired of COVID. I'm even tired of COVID. And it gives me a reason to be talking to you and many other people sort of platforming uh, messages. But I'm tired of it, too. I get it. We all have COVID exhaustion. On the other hand, it's too early to give up. The, the thing isn't gone and new mutations uh, could still arise that could be nasty. Do I worry about masking outdoors, going to a ball game, going, sitting outside at a picnic or a restaurant? I don't. I think the risk there is pretty low. We've come to also understand that this thing is airborne, that uh, you really aren't going to conquer it by deep cleaning. Sorry, mom, but that's what we found out. It's not uh, sticking on surfaces. It's blowing through the air. But if you get a lot of ventilation, you're in a room that's highly ventilated, I don't worry about it. If you're in a place, Broadway show, old ventilation, old small seats on top of one another, I would still mask there. And I would do it not to protect me, but to protect the elderly crowd that shows up in exactly that kind of setting. I still believe morally should try to protect your neighbor when it's not too burdensome on you. And wearing a mask for a couple hours at the theater, not too burdensome. Sorry, I know people hate it, still not too burdensome. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say indoors, close contact, crummy ventilation. I think about it. I think about putting on a mask. For the most part, where I go, out to eat outdoors at this point, better weather, uh, sitting at an outdoor concert and the rest of that, I don't worry. I don't even worry about it too much, to tell you the truth, at NYU. We have very good ventilation systems. They got replaced due to Hurricane Sandy. Air is blowing all over the place. It's like, I don't know. I feel I feel pretty safe that we're, we're not getting uh, in confined spaces. So if you thought I'm in a space and everybody else is at risk, yeah, I'd say the opera, the... Uh, um, Broadway shows, these are places where older clients are there. That's who goes. I haven't seen anybody under 50 at a Broadway show in New York in a long time. Maybe the kid shows, you know, uh, the ones uh, about uh, the Wizard of Oz and so on. But generally, it's an old crowd. Protect them. Protect them. What haven't I asked you about COVID that's an ethical dilemma that maybe I haven't thought of that's a concern that you have been asked by others? So way back, I began to argue in the early days of COVID that we should do something called a challenge study. Challenge study means you deliberately give somebody COVID who has had a vaccine or an antibody or something you're trying to test to see if it either protects you or cures you. It's controversial because you're making somebody sick deliberately. You're not waiting for nature to make them sick. You're saying, Brian, you're here today. There's 100 other people we're giving all of you are new experimental vaccine, and then we're going to give you a dose of COVID up your nose. A lot of people just said it's wrong, but I still don't believe it was wrong. I think if you volunteered at a desperate time when we weren't sure if our vaccines were working quite yet, or later when we were trying to figure out how much COVID exposure do you have to have to get sick? A question that we still don't know the answer to, by the way, because we never, well, actually, Britain just started this challenge study last week. But the ethics of saying, I'm going to make you sick to test something either preventive or therapeutic, I argued for it. A lot of people just did not agree. And it didn't happen early on. It's starting to happen now. So that was a tough, I mean, I wouldn't deny it. That's a tough ethics call. You're sure. supposed to do no harm and going around 
giving people bad diseases is tough to justify. But, you know, you know this, <clears throat> the history of smallpox, cholera, yellow fever, they're all challenge studies too. You let the mosquito bite you, then you'd see if the shot or the medicine prevented yellow fever. Right. That was well to read. To try to save as many people as you can if you suffer. Um, one last question for you, because I know I know how busy you are, and I, it's, it's the evening, and I want you to enjoy some time with your family. But what got you into this? Like early on um, in your career, you know, you probably right guy could have picked a lot of different things. What was it about bioethics in particular that medical ethics that that raised your interest? Two things. When I was a little little kid, I had polio. One of the last people in America to have polio. By the way, it's why I'm so strong on vaccines because I know what a bad can disease can do to kids. Iron lungs, dead, paralyzed, very bad. Luckily for me, I never was in an iron lung, but I was paralyzed legs and neck for nine months. Wow. When I was seven. It got me thinking all the time about ethics issues, telling patients the truth, which they didn't do, that sort of thing. The other thing was, I don't know if you remember this, but I, I actually started at Columbia Medical School and in my first year, I saw this enormous fight. The head of OBGYN got into it with a guy who was trying the first IVF experiments in a dish. Raymond Vanderweel was the head of OBGYN at Columbia. He ran into this guy's lab and threw whatever the hell it was in his dish down the drain. Said, you're not doing that experiment in my lab on my watch. It's unethical. I was not consulted about it, but I watched it and I thought, holy cow. Who's doing the ethics of all this stuff? This is pretty interesting. So it was out of those wow, early like experiences, plus seeing things when I was a, you know, nothing first-year student, second-year student is watching, and I began to say, there's something here we're not paying attention to. We, we, we need to be more explicit. You'll, I, I'll tell you one more little angle on that. When I went to ask the dean at Columbia, dean of students, so when are we talking about the ethics stuff? He said, well, you just ask your attending. And this is inside baseball between Brian and I, but it's a funny thing to say because you're not going to go ask for attending about his ethics. You'd be, I'd be working on the road gang on I-95 filling potholes if I, it was, that was like, bye-bye, see you, medicine, much later. So I had to go get a philosophy degree to find some place where I could actually think about and discuss those things. But the idea that we were going to take it up with our senior attendings, <laughs> I don't know, I'm not even sure you can do that today with uh, without getting <clears throat> some uh, setbacks. Well, you know, over the years, oh my gosh, we've talked about so many issues at so many different times, and you've always been so available. And I think most importantly, you you, pre you present a realistic approach, and you try to be fair. I think every, every time I've talked to you, I don't really know what your answer is going to be because you're going to give the answer that you think is ethically the right answer. It's not necessarily even what art thinks is the way to go. It's what you the way to go. And I think that's a really important thing as a professional. And I, I do appreciate you taking the time to join me on the show. It, it's a lot of fun and it, it's always great to talk to you. And yeah, I'm really happy you had me back. And what I'll do to end the show is let you listen to this song. No, not again. Bye. The Dr. Brian McDonough Show.